Hi everybody, welcome to Lectures on Lacan, a podcast dedicated to clear, coherent, and accessible readings of key texts in Lacanian psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Samuel McCormick, Professor of Communication Studies and Psychoanalysis at San Francisco State University. Hope you enjoy today's episode, and if you do, be sure to like and follow us on Substack, Instagram, and all the usual places. Little a is notoriously the object cause of desire. I say object cause because remember, in the field of anxiety, what it is working on or targeting is this weird kind of object. It's not really an object, it's more like a cause. The object here is lack. We wanna talk a little bit more about how that comes about, what this entity is. Lacan has lots of words for this, gap, cut, furrow, opening. Lack, though, is the primary one. The object of anxiety is also the cause of your desire. In other words, the desire of the big other when they show up and provoke anxiety is to target the very cause of your sense of self in many ways as a desiring being this lack atop which your desire is structured. That lack is represented by little a. Little a is trying to designate these furrows or gaps or cuts between entities. So if you have, again, two entities or two halves of an entity like a split subject, little a is always gonna be that third element. You see, in order to say you have two distinct things, you must always have at least three entities. There is item A, item B, and the irreducible difference between those two entities that allows them to remain item A and item B, namely distinct. That third element is represented by little a. Anytime you see a Lacanian term that is barred, like a barred A with an A with a line through it, or a split subject, rest assured that bar is little a. It's the minimum distance required. In other words, you can't make the distance any smaller without having the two entities collapsing in together. It's the minimum distance required to keep them distinct. So if you take my hands, for instance, two distinct hands, and if I put them together, I can push these hands together as far and hard as I want, but there's always going to be a crack in between. No matter how hard I push them together, there's a split. If little a were to disappear in this case, my hands would pass into each other and there would just be one. Does that make sense? If you remove the gap or the space between two entities that maintains their distinction, you now just have one. And if you really want to mess around with this and get creative, now turn your attention with this new concept to border disputes. Turn this new concept loose at the southern border of the United States. Turn this loose on fence technology 
turn this loose on systems of security. Anything that is designed to maintain a border and carve up the world is going to have a lot of little a's in it. Little a is just an opening. And the important thing for us is that it's enigmatic. It's not an opening that readily appears to you. You see, we talked a lot about the split subject before I pointed out that there's that third element, namely the bar. That's the thing about little a. It's tough to keep your finger on it. It's tough to keep your eye on it. I think a great page to help us is page 161. This is about where we ended with Carolina's question on the real. She was reading more or less from 161, and I said, let's back up to 160 when the real pops up. I think these are great pages for us. Rather than read them all together, which you can do on your own, I just want to highlight some things. And I want to do that by drawing a little bit, per usual, and then giving you an equation. A mathematical equation that's going to look like some shit that somebody came up with in the fourth grade. Nothing fancy, but that's the idea. It's a simple mathematical equation that shows us how we get this little a. So if you all are cool with that, I'm going to shift to screen share. But first, are you cool with that? Pretty good? Okay. So we're going to go to screen share again. I'm going to do the usual and show you this black screen. Everybody see it okay? Yeah. Okay, thank you. Okay, so if you take the graph of desire and you pull a few segments out of it, Lacanians like to do this all the time. You can see the full graph on page four of the seminar. What I'm going to do is I'm going to pull out a little snippet of it and leave some of the other stuff out. So I want to highlight castration in the top part. And I want to suggest that there's this line that extends from big A up to castration. And you can see this little D of desire along the way. I'm going to emphasize this a little bit. Because what I also told you is that one of the sites where we see A popping up is right here. On the way to desire and up into castration. We'll come to talk about in a second. This is the first arrow that comes out of big A. There's another arrow that comes out and points over here and gives us, again, meaning according to a not barred but full other. You can see this in the graph of desire and then extends down to give us, you'll recall in some of the early graph work we did as Lacan is scaling up the graph of desire, our split subject. If castration is happening up here, I wanna suggest that there's like a flip side of the coin. So don't read these as too far distinct. This is what's going to be called subjectification. And the reason why I want to emphasize the connection between these two aspects is because a split subject is a castrated subject. 
And what that means is that they have given up on being just babies that can cry and get whatever they want. And they've accepted their alienation in a language not of their own making that they now have to use in order to get their needs met. You'll recall this is our basic definition of demand. Demand is need expressed in language. And that process of forcing need, here's our subject of pure need down here, into the field of language, we can draw our little arrow here that signifies language, L-A-N-G for abbreviation, is what's going to take need, recode it as demand, and then give us this subject that is split between need and demand. This process is called subjectification, and it produces a split subject. Now, what's important about this to note is that, again, this element, this third element here, little a, is the bar right here. So little a is this third element, and I'm telling you that it's up here as well. Now you've got these three terms that we have been messing with for the past few sessions, need, demand, and desire. And you'll recall the definition of desire that I gave us to start with was demand minus need. So there's a connection between these elements. In order to produce a split subject, you also have to awaken something known as desire. Because what's left of demand after need has been met is an insatiable desire for care from other people. What I'm trying to do is show you two places on the graph of desire where we see little a as lack, as leftover, as cause or as gap popping up. <clears throat> and the reason why this is important, in particular for our purposes, is here. This is the vision of little a <clears throat> that Lacan is working with on page 161. So turn with me to 161. I mean, you know what, actually, if we just want to be like really thorough with this, we've got the time. Look at page 160 at the bottom, and it gives you this little table. But if you read 160, the last paragraph, you get a really nice summary of how the split subject is formed. If you're still fuzzy on this one, here's one of those paragraphs that can be pretty helpful. I've already taught you to locate the process of subjectification inasmuch as the subject has to be constituted in the locus of the other. That means that in order to be a subject that is effective, functional, held, and so forth, you have to find a home in the big other, in the symbolic. The subject has to be constituted in the locus or the site of the other, and primarily so in the shape of the signifier. The subject is constituted in the locus of the other upon what is given by the treasure of the signifier. Big A with a circle around it in the graph in front of you is this treasure trove of signifiers. It's all the words in the dictionary. 
It's all the possible things that the other could want from you. It's um, all the possible things you could do when the baby cries, if you recall that example. That's this treasure trove, which is already constituted in the other and which is just as essential to any advent of human life as everything we can conceive of with respect to the natural umwelt. So this is a German term. It's predominantly associated with the work of Heidegger. Um means around in German and Welt means world. So it just kind of means like your surroundings or your environment is another good way to read this. The natural environment. The treasure of the signifier in which he has to situate himself already awaits the subject who at this mythical level doesn't yet exist. So this mythical level that doesn't yet exist is here on the graph. It's this triangle. It's the subject of pure need. This is a mythical being. And he says doesn't yet exist because to exist is to have a place in the symbolic. And it doesn't mean that we don't have places for babies in the symbolic. It means they don't experience themselves as being placed. They don't think I have a place to keep, to reject, to revise. They don't feel placed. We place them, but it's not an experience that they have. So it's a mythical subject at this point who doesn't yet exist. Sometimes Lacan will symbolize this mythical subject with just a capital S, unbarred. And that's what you see in the little table on page 160. There's a whole A and a whole S at the top. That whole S refers to this mythical subject, the subject of pure need that doesn't yet exist. He will only exist on the basis of the signifier that precedes him and which bears a constituent relationship to him. So here is this treasure trove of signifiers up here, which is why we have language here as well. I'm gonna write signification here. So you know that we're entering the field of the signifier here. Now, this signifier field precedes the subject in a very simple way, which we've discussed. You are born into a world of language that preceded your birth. Your name was chosen for you. The terms and the language you were going to speak was already determined before you were born. English, your first language, if indeed that's what it was, was there long before you arrived. It preceded you. And Lacan's point here is that it bears a constituent relationship to you because it's in the field of language that you will find your identity. And honestly, truth be told, where your identity will be assigned to you. Now we get ready for the good stuff. But before I get there, I'm going to come back and stare at the screen. Are you all good with this so far? Okay, good. Great, because this is really, really important foundational stuff. And now that we've gone through it multiple times, I think you're starting to get the rhythm of this. You can always holler at me if you want more. Let's go back here and, and read, it, read on some more. 161. Let's say that the subject performs a first interrogative operation in A. How many times? The operation being a supposed one, 
there then appears a difference between the response A marked by the interrogation and the given A, something which is the remainder, the irreducible aspect of the subject. This is the A. The difference between response A and given A. The most important phrase in this point is the difference between. Little a is the name for a differential relationship between distinct entities. In this case, two versions of big A. And now it's when it gets good. The little a is what remains of the irreducible in the complete operation of the subject's advent in the locus of the other. Okay, so this gets back to Carolina's question of why the real is wrapped up in all this. Lacan is invoking the real because it always has an aspect of irreducibility in it. You can't fuck with the real. It's recalcitrant. It resists efforts to reduce, replace, displace, represent, and so forth. The real bites back. It is incredibly good at avoiding reduction. This A is what remains of the irreducible in the complete operation of the subject's advent in the locus of the other. And it is from this that we will derive its function. So what Lacan is here saying is that the A in question is right here. And it's something that, if you want to think about it, spins out from this process. So the process of producing a split subject, it produces a remainder something that is irreducible. And by that, I think what he means is you can't take this remainder or this product and reduce it to any of these other elements. It can't quite fit in here and it can't quite fit in there. It can, however, find an expression here. Little a is captured by the bar that divides the subject. But remember, this bar is irreducible because if you were to reduce it to nothing, if you were to make it go away, you would no longer have a split subject where need and demand have to be dialectically oriented. You would now have a de-need or a need-mand. You'd have some weird thing that would not be the same subject of language. You would not have the Lacanian subject in this case. You'd have something else. And I dare say you'd probably have somebody on the verge of psychosis. The split subject is characteristically a neurotic subject. Reading on. The little a's relation to the s the A inasmuch as it is precisely what represents the S in its irreducible real. This A over S, which brings the operation of division, very important here, to a close. Because indeed, A has no common denominator, big A. It lies outside the common denominator between the A and the S. 
If we want to bring the operation to a close, nevertheless, in a conventional way, what do we do? We put the remainder in the place of the numerator and the divisor in the place of the denominator. The split subject is equivalent to A over S. And then he gives us this mathing. Split subject equals A over S. I'm willing to go along with this, but I would like to suggest a different reading and maybe even suggest that there's a mistake in Lacan's mathematization of this thing. What I would like to suggest is something that looks more like this. If we want an equation that can really work with us here, let's stick with some basic, as I said, fourth grade division. You recognize this sign. So here is our subject of pure need. Here it is down here, this subject, the capital S, and it is going to be divided by big A. Big A is going to shoot through this being and split it in half. When the subject of pure need experiences the divisive signifiers of their everyday life, what is produced is a split subject, but that's not all. What's left of this subject of pure need after the advent of signification in its life is a remainder. So I'm gonna put a little decimal here and I'm gonna write that remainder as A. This, I believe, is a much better equation that captures the divisive practice that Lacan is working with on 161. Importantly, for our purposes, it also very clearly shows you what the remainder here is. So you could think of this as 3.14, da, 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 and this goes on and on. That's what we've got here, split subject point A, where little a here is a remainder some irreducible leftover part of this process of division. You can no longer divide this by big A would be the suggestion here. Inasmuch as it is the cast off, as it were, of the subjective operation, we recognize in this remainder, through a computational analogy, the lost object. This is what we are dealing with. On one hand in desire, on the other in anxiety. Now that is important here. This little a that we're talking about here is simultaneously the cause of desire and the object of anxiety. And you remember how we traced that out. Just to be a refresher on this. The desire of a big barred other is coming for your little a. And as a result, fucking with your split subjectivity. So this is why little a is so damn important to questions of desire and anxiety. Because on the one hand, it marks the cause of the split subject's desire. On the other hand, though, 
when it is the target of a desirous big other, it is also the cause of the split subject's anxiety. So that's why we had this formula worked up. So you could see how the cause of your desire becomes the object of anxiety. I think that's enough for little a for now. The main things to remember again is that this is the cause of desire, which is why we position it underneath desire in this graph. It's what drops out or falls away as a remainder of the subjectification process, which is also the castration process, if you think about it, which is why in this little division we have dot A, point A, because it's the remainder of a divisive process, in this case where the subject is divided into demand and need, sociolinguistic and biomaterialistic. Here also down in the equation of the split subject, at the end of our graph of desire, you can see again that little a is also rendered as the bar, the very thing that divides, introducing a gap or a space or a cut between the two halves of the split subject. It is a third element. It occupies a position of thirdness in the field of split subjectivity. All right, let's pause for some questions. I'm going to turn the screen share off, but I can always flip it back on when you want. Um, I have a quick question. Go ahead, Ara. To make this concrete, um, for me, when you said uh, producing a split subject, that's when a baby learns language. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, it, learning language might be a tricky way to put it. I like the idea that this would be um, the point at which a child doesn't learn language, but they learn that language exists. And I think that's a really important cl clarification here. Before a child learns to say the words that the adult uses in their life, they first recognize that those words are something to be used in life. And that's a really important distinction here. So the bayahung that we talked about last time, this kind of, of affirmation of language that exists, that's not learning the language. That's just affirming that there's something out there known as language. And after that, atop that, ex that acceptance or affirmation of language, then you could get in there and like learn the rudiments of a very specific language. But first and foremost, there is an acceptance or an affirmation in German, Beyahung, that the child has to experience and affirm and accept that language is there in order to pass to the next phase of learning that language, of taking up their place in it. And I want you to just remember that this is a tricky thing to talk about because I speak about it almost in a chronological fashion. But mm -hmm. the primitive affirmation of symbolization itself is logically prior. That's an important part here. Yes, chronologically, technically, it would occur before somebody learns a language, but it is implicit, presupposed by any language use. And the way that I try to describe this last time um, is to remind you that when you have a disagreement 
with your friend or your partner or your roommate or a parent or whatever, there are an implicit set of rules of engagement that you both accept. No matter how fierce the disagreement is, there's an underlying structure of assent, affirmation, and agreement. So the example I had was, whose dish is this in the sink? And you and your roommate or partner are arguing about who did the dishes last, and it was you who did it, no, it was me who did it, and you go back and forth. We know things that are very unlikely to happen in a situation like that. No one is likely to get stabbed or shot or thrown through a wall or a window or, you know, horrendous violence. It can happen, it does happen, but it's very unlikely. In most cases, the rules of the road say we can have a civil disagreement where we use our words, not our hands, and have a discussion and disagree on things. That implicit understanding that this is not a knockdown, drag out knife fight, but instead a civil discussion between two adults, that speaks to this issue of bayahun. So prior to engaging in any specific disagreement, you have to recognize that this is somebody with whom I can have a disagreement along very specific terms. In other words, and, and, and uh, hold at on that point, go ahead, to, sorry. Just to reiterate real quick. In other words, at the foundation of every disagreement and every discord would be a tacit, sometimes, oftentimes largely unspoken consensus. And that's the main point. And that would happen first. The same thing occurs with language. There is a tacit acceptance that language exists and can be used as a medium, if you will, prior to any specific learning of a language and use thereof. So I want to be very careful to distinguish these two moments. There's the moment where you inhabit a language, learn it, and start to use it. And then there's this presuppositional moment when you acknowledge and affirm the existence of something like language. The name of the father, the know of the father, prohibition, castration are all anchored to that primitive primordial affirmation where you say this thing exists and now I'm going to accept it or reject it. The reason why we have psychosis, according to Lacan, is they never undergo that primitive, primordial acceptance of the existence of language. There is no bayahum that occurs for the psychotic. The neurotic and the pervert diverge further down the road, but at this stage of development, they're on the same page. They both acknowledge the existence of language, and then they do different things atop that. And I think that conceptually, if you really want to get into Lacan's thought, this is the conceptual foundation of his thought. Because that primitive, primordial, unary trait is a prohibition. It's the name of the father because that's the no of the father. And it is a prohibition. Again, I'm reiterating this point because it's so central to his thought. It's a prohibition against any further living as though prohibition didn't exist. In the case of language, it would be a prohibition against pretending like language isn't there. But that is exactly what the psychotic does. 
the psychotic says, oh, and that didn't just happen. Totally reject that. That is absolutely foreclosed. That is not even a possibility for me. That didn't just happen. That's the psychotic at work. What's, what's structurally so strange about this is that it would be occurring at the level of a presuppositional moment where you affirm the existence of something. Even before you say, I like it or I don't like it, you acknowledge that there is an it to be liked or disliked. The psychotic doesn't even get to that point. Okay. I and, at that, and at that point in time, when you acknowledge that something exists, and uh, what would be, and it's funny, I know I'm contradicting myself, uh, like a concrete example of the remainder. And we've already said that the remainder is elusive, but if could you, if it would help me if you could just make one up. Yeah. Um, you know, there is a really interesting example in Freud's essay on negation that's worth noting here. And I think I, I think I mentioned it before, but Freud has this mid 1920s essay on negation. That's what it's what gets Lacan going on this Bayahun concept. It's where he derives that concept Bayahun from Freud's German. And Freud opens that really small. It's like a five page essay. You should check it out. It's pretty, pretty fascinating. He does a lot of work in five pages, man. And he opens the essay by um, talking about somebody who has a dream. Somebody had a dream. And the, the therapist turns to the person and says, well, what do you think that dream's about? And the, the, the analyzan says, I can tell you it's definitely not about my mom. Right. And this for Freud is an example of negation. And he says the reason why this counts as negation is because there is a primitive affirmation of this being about the mom that can then be negated. But in order for it to be negated, there has to be a presuppositional acknowledgement that this could be seen as something to do with my mom. And that is Bayahun. That's a primitive affirmation. And if you want to trace out where little a would be in here, now remember, this is Lacan and not Freud. It would be the differential relationship between the primitive affirmation of this could be seen as something about my mom and the secondary negation that says, this but it's not. Right. Yes. And so little a as the cause of desire is the gap between those two responses that the patient really can't fucking wrap their head around. You see, they can, they can recognize, oh, you might think that's about my mom. Well, it's not. And then they're off to the races. But the interesting point for Lacan would be how are these two moments in your self-analysis connected? What is the differential relation that allows these to be so distinct? One which affirms the relevance of your mother to this dream and another which completely negates that affirmation. Lacan's point is that there's something going on between these two moments. That between is little a. And that's why it's so elusive. That's why it's not a regular object, because technically speaking, it is the space between two objects that allows them to remain distinct. But that, so that's an example. I used a, a wonky one because I want to remind us that the Freud essay on negation is terrific for this stuff. But little a cuts in, if you will, between those two responses. 
Great question, as always. What else you got out there? Oh, David, here we go again. Is it appropriate to think of the no as irreducible insofar as it brings in the split? Brilliant and yes. This no would be irreducible, but guess what? It is hella repressible. Irreducible, yes, but hella repressible. So what happens in this process that we discussed that goes from bayahum to negation to repression is that that no, David, is gradually from affirmation to negation to repression, gradually placed under erasure, gradually forgotten. And this is why it's so angst provoking when the desirous big other shows up and says, shape up and show me your balls. Show me you're castrated. I want your lack. It's terrifying because what they're asking you to do is resurrect the very thing that you as an ego don't want to think about, which is the fact that you are not an independent, autonomous, individual being. You are a dependent, heteronymous, subjectified being. You are subjectified to language. And the primitive subjectifying moment is that no. And that's exactly what the desirous other wants from you. It says, show me your no-no. Show me your no-no spot. Show me that you've undergone the big no-no. Show me that you're split, divided, heteronymous. And the ego is like, that's not true. I'm a coherent being with stable feelings and a sense of consistency. And the reason why anxiety comes up is because somebody calls bullshit on that. They're like, no, you're not. You're worthless and weak and you know it deep down. And you're like, no, that's not true. That's not, I'm, I'm dramatizing this, but you get the idea. So the answer, David, is yes, that no is irreducible, but that doesn't mean it can't be negated and then subsequently repressed. And the nature of neurosis as a clinical structure, the basic mechanism is a series of resistances and repressions around prohibition. That's what it means for someone to be egotistical. They think the world is all about them. To be egocentric is somebody who thinks that it should always go their way. If you want to just like be basic about it, that's kind of true. That's the work of the ego, trying to pretend like they were never told no. The ego thinks that they rule the world. And if they don't, they damn well should. And when anxiety comes up, it's somebody shows up larger than life and says, you're full of shit. You don't rule the world. You're worthless and weak. And you know it, and I know it. And that's terrifying. But anyway, yeah, David, great question. Who else is out there? The P and the A, the C and the A, the D and the M, the S and the T. These anonymous, are you guys bots? Oh my gosh, are there bots on this call? Was that a, David, is the reason why your audio doesn't work because you are a bot? This is like checking the box where the stoplights appear. 
<gasps> no, ha ha ha, I'm in the library. That's exactly the kind of shit a bot would say. Okay, totally understand, David. Really happy that you're sharing. I'm 20 minutes out, and I still owe David a commentary on the masochist, which I am going to deliver. Okay, we're at this crossroads now. And what's going to happen here is I'm going to turn the page. And the page is going to take us to another page. And this page is going to have a different topic. And so this might feel like a bit of a shift. But what I want to do now is return us back to the topic of perversion. And the reason why I want to do that is because this is one of the clearest places where we see somebody showing up and trying to produce anxiety in another. The two clinical structures that Lacan wants to speak about here, subsets of perversion, sadism and masochism. I told you at the start of our time here tonight that the sadist and the masochist both believe that they're helping the big other get off. That is their fantasy. They think that what they're doing is giving you what you want, helping you get your kicks. That is the fantasy of the sadist and the masochist, but it's not their truth. The truth of the sadist and the masochist is that they are in fact getting off on making you anxious. And I'm not making this up, it's on page 152, you can check it out. What Lacan is here noting is a difference between the fantasy of the pervert and the truth. The fantasy is, I'm just here to get you off. I'm in service to your jouissance. Wrong. The truth of it, Lacan says, is that what you're doing and what brings you jouissance is me in an anxious state. You're not trying to get me off. You're trying to rile me up. It's not jouissance that you're trying to produce in me, but anxiety. And I want to end with two examples here. The first is from last time's readings, God as a sadist. On pages 79 to 80, we see this commandment from God. Just in time, Geocosmo, you could not have picked a better time to come in. Uh, Geocosmo is a retired rabbi, as some of you know, so this is going to be pretty fascinating. A little bit of an echo there, but God says, Ecclesiastes, enjoy. Enjoy your wife, enjoy your food, enjoy your job. This is like a commandment of the superego. And it is like all superego commandments, a sadistic one. It is impossible to satisfy because we're castrated. We can't enjoy like a God. Castration is an obstacle to enjoyment. Split subjectivity is a barrier to jouissance. We can't enjoy like a God, but we really feel like we should be able to. This is that work of the ego that I was just talking about. I know I can't enjoy like a God, but damn it, I really should try. Here's the deal though. When we try to enjoy the way that Ecclesiastes asked us to, we stumble. We stumble on our own castration. This is exactly what the sadistic, in this case, God, wants to see. 
wants to see us struggling to live up. That is very interesting. If we're looking at the symbolic and the real on that Borromean knot as we started tonight, that would be a little bit more in the real. Because you could start to see how the symbolic or the meaning-based function of what you just heard starts to slip away and you start getting just the grain of the voice. That's the real. The real is what you actually hear. The symbolic is the meaning or the content that comes through my voice. There's the linguistic part of what you're hearing me say, which points to the symbolic. And then there's the paralinguistic, which points to the real, the grain of the voice that you heard digitally spinning out. That echo started with an iterative moment of speech, which is how language works. Meaning works because it's iterative. And it disintegrated, the echo disintegrated the meaning component of what you just heard into the grain of the voice. And that would be the real. Here though, back to the sadistic. They wanna see us squirm. They wanna see us anxious. Now, why does the sadistic so want us to perform castration? Why do they want to see us struggle with our split subjectivity? Here's the reason why. Because castration is the basis for the law. Don't forget, law and desire go hand in hand. And the pervert struggles with a weak relationship to the law. And so by forcing you to twist and turn and struggle to enjoy in an anxious way, they get an amplification of the law that was only weakly pronounced in their early lives. That's a clean and fairly dirty way to get at what the sadist is up to. Your anxiety signals your castration which in turn connects to the law. And the more you writhe in anxious castration, the more the Sado feels connected to the law. The neurotic is somebody that had the law pronounced pretty clearly, consistently, and calmly. The no was heard consistently throughout their life in a calm voice. The sadist, you'll recall the opening of our talk tonight, is somebody who would usually have heard the no of the father as a no exclamation point. And that's a good way to distinguish this. The sadist and the neurotic, they both heard the no of the father, the name of the father. But the difference is this. In the case of neurosis, the no is N-O period. In the case of the pervert, and here we're talking about the subset of the sadist, it's N-O exclamation point. The neurotic is fully castrated, fully split, fully enmeshed in the symbolic, and has a very robust sense of right and wrong and normative and anormative and the like. The pervert has an only partial place in the symbolic. A the symbolic has a weak hold on them. And as a result, that produces a state, which is partly why they're off 
on producing discomfort in others, but not the only or the primary reason why. They get off on forcing us to perform an anxious, castrated state because it amplifies the weak legislative relationship that they have to the symbolic. Remember the example, the sadist doesn't get off on hitting you with the stick. They get off on getting the stick out of the bag, showing it to you and saying, you've been a very bad boy, haven't you? Confess, admit that you've been bad. That is the source of jouissance for the sadist. The strike of the stick afterwards, come on, that's not where it's at. Where it's at is watching the subject tied to the chair squirm and a bead of sweat run down their forehead as the stick is produced and shown to them. Because that's how the sadist or the pervert learned the law was at the end of a stick. Now, if God is a sadist, according to Lacan, pages 79 to 80, what we see on pages 164 forward is that Jesus is the great masochist, the paradigmatic masochist. Here's how the argument works in three steps. It's on page 164. I don't think we need to look at the actual passages. You can track them down on your own. Don't go too far because you'll get to some incredible art uh, with eyeballs on trays and breasts as well. 164, though, gets at it, this Christian myth. First, God, according to Lacan, doesn't have a soul. He lacks a soul. That lack is here represented by a little a. God has a little a. There's something that God lacks, and it's a soul. Jesus shows up on the scene, according to Lacan, and makes himself God's soul. He now occupies the place that God only experienced as before him. Jesus positions himself in and effectively taking the place of God's little a. This, Lacan's going to suggest, I expect, he's not exactly clear here, is what makes Jesus a masochist. Because what Jesus in this moment does is he's getting off on showing up and taking God's lack, depriving God, if you will, of what he lacks. If God lacks a soul, and then to give it back to God, there's no giving here at all. This is a strict taking. Now, how does this comport with masochism? For Freud, Sadists come first and masochists spin out. For Lacan, it's just the opposite. All sadists are in fact masochists at heart. And what Lacan means by that is that the masochist is somebody who at some level gets off on their own pain, on their own self-mortification, their own humiliation, on being reduced to little scraps of flesh, on being reduced to the worthless pieces of shit in other people's lives. Now that's a lot of pain to have, handle. Sadists 
are masochists who can't handle the pain. And as a result, have to dish it out on other people. This is Lacan's read. We talked about God as a sadist. Here we're dealing with Jesus as his masochistic component. The Catholic Jesus is about as masochistic as it gets. If you, in fact, run the gamut from a Mormon Jesus, Church of the Latter-day Saint, to a Catholic Jesus, good Lord, let me tell you, the Mormon Jesus is shirtless, muscular. The Mormon Jesus is pulling a wagon with 18 sheep in it, the veins bursting on his neck, wavy blonde hair, which we know is BS. He's strong, he's vital, he's vibrant. Now imagine the Catholic Jesus. He's emaciated. His face is bloodied and cut. He's been stabbed in the side. He's on the cross. The Catholic Jesus is a crucified Jesus. He is suffering like so many martyrs have before. In so doing, the argument would go, Jesus makes God anxious. This is a masochistic way to be. What the masochist gets off on is not you inflicting pain on them. What they get off on is you imposing the law onto them. The masochist enjoys not so much being hit by the stick, but having you tell them about the stick. The stick I'm about to hit you with has been used to hit so many men like you in the past. Here, smell it. You can still smell some of their flesh on it. Disgusting X, Y, and Z, but it's not about disgust. And it's not about pain. It's about legislation. If the sadist gets off on imposing the law on others, the masochist is somebody who gets off on having the law imposed on them. Jesus fits the bill, according to Lacan. And the reason why he has chosen God the Father and Jesus the Son for his opening illustration of this is because you have to remember the desirous other that shows up to society is not just anything. And there ain't no bigger other than God the Father and Jesus the Son. That's where this reading leaves us. We're in the mid-169, and the last couple of pages in here are really just of those two artworks. I mean to leave us here in an elusive state. Elusive and elusive. I don't know how much of this Jesus business is going to come back. But if you read 164 closely, this is what you'll see. Jesus, by making himself God's soul, is taking God's lack from him. And as a result, God now experiences a lack of lack, which we know is the condition of anxiety. The masochist gets off on you wondering if the stick's going to be big enough, if they've had enough. You see, 
the villain is there pounding away on the victim. And the villain leans down to the victim and says, have you had enough? And you know what the victim does. They laugh, spit blood, spit teeth, and chuckle in responses to the sadistic's question, have you had enough? And you've seen how this plays out in movies, which in this case seems pretty apt. The sadist now is stunned. Nobody can take this amount of violence and survive. How is this person still standing? Oh, you're going to laugh. Now I'm going to take the pain up even more. These are all anxious responses to a masochist who says, I'm not done yet. Give me more. This produces anxiety in the other. And the masochist gets off on the very same thing the sadist does in this sense. Not the jouissance of the big other. That's the fantasy. They get off on the anxiety of the big other. On the way the other squirms. When the law is, in the case of the sadist, pronounced. In the case of the masochist, evoked. The masochist wants to evoke the law from you. These are high-end examples and technical concepts, but I guarantee you've seen some of this in your everyday life. Consider, for instance, the partner that you had who in a fight would always push you and push you and push you until you finally say to them, what the fuck do you want from me? Or you take a glass and you throw it against the wall. You've completely lost your cool. They've pushed you so far. They are the masochist. They are getting off on seeing your pronouncement of opinion, of argument, coupled with your jouissance. In a fit that Lacan would here describe as anxious, an explosion of acute anxiety. And similarly, you've seen and maybe even been in relationships. What else is mansplaining but somebody who gets off on imposing the law on those around them? Thanks for listening to Lectures on the Con. Stay tuned for more episodes soon. A big shout out to the artist Jerry Paper for our podcast theme music.